Father, we come to study what is perhaps the most famous sermon your son ever preached. And we ask for incredible insight and wisdom as we work through this together so that we can understand what he's about and what you're about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to dispense with the walkthrough until uh, the next session, but I want to get you through the Sermon on the Mount in one easy session. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' uh, most famous sermon. It's my opinion that he preached this more than once. It's my opinion that, uh, like many preachers, you know, if you have me come speak at your church for the weekend, I've got some old standbys. I've got about a dozen of them, and you're going to get some of that. And I think Jesus used this sermon over and over again. I'm not sure, to be honest, that he ever preached it in the form that we have it in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. But I am sure of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount so that we would understand his interpretation of the kind of righteousness demanded by the Old Testament law. And again, in this time in the life of Jesus, we see a controversy erupting between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they had a concept of righteousness that was different than his. And we're going to see as the sermon unpacks that over and over again, Jesus is going to show that his standard is different than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me talk to you a little bit about what the sermon is not. The sermon is not the constitution of the messianic kingdom. And there are commentators who hold it as such. I don't believe it to be the way that it's delivered. I don't believe the content fits that mold. It is also not the means by which we can be saved because in the sermon there's an awful lot of works and we're always saved by grace through faith on the basis of what Jesus does for us. Nor is the sermon uh, Christian ethics for this age. Although if you obey the teachings of the sermon you will be an ethical uh, person but rather the sermon is Jesus' interpretation of the kind of righteousness demanded by the Old Testament law. Uh, There are a couple of key passages before we jump into the sermon that you need to understand from within. The first is Matthew 5.20. And again, in the very first couple of paragraphs, Jesus gets this out up front. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. Now what's he saying about the scribes and the Pharisees and their whole approach to the Old Testament? It's not good enough. In fact, if you're a scribe or Pharisee, Jesus has just said, you're going to hell. And so you're not really happy about that. And that's one of the things that is woven throughout the sermon. The other passage that I want you to get in the Matthew 5 account is, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus is going to share that The law demands not outward obedience like the Pharisees taught, but the law demands internal perfection. The law does not uh, allow us to have external obedience only. The whole purpose of the law is not to get us to obey. The purpose of the law, we're told in Romans 6 and 7 8, and 7 and 8 is to, to show us that we cannot obey. So when Jesus comes to the law and those 613 ordinances, God gives the law in the Old Testament to show you where you've sinned. Paul says in Romans 6 that if it weren't for the law, I would not have known where I sinned. It's kind of like the speed limit. If you're going down 98 on the way to old Bardo, anybody live in Bardo? You know, and let's suppose, have you ever been pulled over on the way to Bardo for going under the speed limit? No, but many times there are people pulled over for going over the speed limit. The speed limit is there to show you when you screw it up. 
I've never been pulled over by a police officer and said, you know, we'd like to give you a, uh, a commendation of merit for going under the speed limit. We're going to give you the key to the city and hold a parade in your honor for going 54 and a 55. No, it's when you're going 65 and a 55 they pull you over. And that's what the law is about. The law is designed by God to show us where we foul up. And so as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it's good to have that as a background. When you come to the Sermon on the Mount, the outline is pretty simple. And I'm going to teach you three words, and you're going to say these to a person who is near you. The first part of the sermon are the Beatitudes. Say Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And then the middle part is all about the Jewish law. So Beatitudes, law. And the third part of the sermon is an invitation to become a part of Jesus' kingdom. So Beatitudes, law, and kingdom. Say those for me. Beatitudes, law, and kingdom. Tell that to a person sitting next to you good. Let's get first of all to the Beatitudes. This is kind of an introduction to the sermon. In the paragraph number 54, Jesus gives us the occasion. Matthew gives us the occasion in verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him, then began to teach them. And so that is the setting. Jesus is going to teach based upon the fact that the crowd has gathered. And the first thing we learn about are the Beatitudes. The first Several Beatitudes are Godward, verses 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, and I think those are mourning over sin, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. In verses 1, I'm sorry, verses 3 through 6, we have the first four Beatitudes are Godward. The poor in spirit are the submissive people. They're not self-willed. The, those who mourn are sensitized people. They, they're sensitive about their sinfulness. And the, verse 5, the meek are the self-unassuming, and the, those who hunger in verse 6 are the self-needy. And then Jesus switches to the manward beatitudes. This is how we relate to each other. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then... Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And again, when I teach just the Sermon on the Mount, I use all S's. The merciful are those who are sympathetic toward others. And the pure in heart are the single-minded. They're driven, focused on their walk with others, and it, it manifests itself well. And then the peacemakers are the settlers of differences. We're to be settlers of differences in the world around us. And then there are standard bearers, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then the sufferers, in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about me, about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. So those are the manward beatitudes. And then there are... Beatitudes that reflect our relationship with the world around us. And in the world, first of all, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by people. So the first thing Jesus says is as we walk in this world, we're to be like salt. Salt in the old world is a valuable commodity. It does two things. It seasons and it flavors. And I love the sermon this morning that Dave gave. It was about being salt in the workplace. And we're to have an, a, an impact on the world around us. We're to, we're to impact it positively. 
you know, your workplace ought to be known for your faithfulness and you ought to be praying for those people and loving those people and anything that goes on in your workplace or your neighborhood ought to get, ought to get your high attention and it ought to be done in a first-rate manner. And that's what salt does. It, it, it attracts, it seasons, and then it also preserves. And then he says, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. And so in addition to the persecution of verse 11, there's a rejoicing in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. If you live your faith out in the world, there are going to be some that hate it, and there are going to be some that love it. Okay? But make sure they love it for the right reasons. If you're being persecuted, make sure you're being persecuted because of Jesus, not because you're doing something weird. Okay? Make sure that they understand that Jesus is what you're about. Don't beat people over the head with your Bible. You know, don't smack them upside the head and say, you, you are going to hell. Probably not a good approach. But if you act like salt does and you act like light does, you will attract people to the Savior. Those are the Beatitudes. Now, Roman numeral 2 in my outline is about the law. And in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think, in paragraph 55, Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to do what? Fulfill them. Now let me give you a history of how we got to this place at the time of Christ. Okay? At the time of Jesus, there is a, a body of work called the Mishnah. Say Mishnah. Mishnah. Look at the person next to you, say Mishnah. Now say it in Hebrew, Mishnah. Mishnah. Okay. Mishnah is the Hebrew word for second. Okay? The Mishnah is about this many books on a shelf, and it's part of a big bunch of stuff on a shelf called the Talmud. To this day, if you want to study to be a rabbi, you have to go and become an expert in the Talmud. Those of you who remember books and not Kindles will understand that a Talmud is about the size of an Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay? And the first five or six volumes are the Mishnah. The Talmud is, it consists of two things, the Mishnah and the Gemara. Our goal tonight is not to understand the Gemara. That's not our, 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 we don't need that for this. But I want you to understand if that's a picture of what a Talmud is, and that's what it is. That many books on a shelf, it would take about maybe two to three uh, gigs on a hard drive, okay, for those of you who are tech-savvy. Uh, the Mishnah looks like this. Now, I expect you to be able to read this by the end of the hour. And, and, and again, I love to go to Israel, and I love to go to the Wailing Wall, and often you'll find the rabbinical students reading the Mishnah. And um, Americans have no idea about what the Mishnah is, and so we're going to learn about it. This is the, the Hebrew text of the Bible, and then all around here is the Mishnah, and this is the commentary of the rabbis about the Mishnah, and then down here is the commentary on the commentary. So that's actually the Gemara. Okay? Now, the way this worked is this. The Mishnah came about at the end of the Old Testament. There, was, there are three books at the end of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. When Ezra the priest came back from the Babylonian captivity in about 500 B.C., okay, he realized that the Jews had been out of their land for over 100 years. They'd been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., and a little over 100 years later, when all the Jews started to resettle the land, most of them had lost the Hebrew language. They spoke Persian and they spoke Babylonian, but they were not experts in Hebrew. 
So Ezra came up with a school called the School of the Sopharim. Sopharim is the Hebrew word for scribes. And the Sopharim began to teach the people what the Old Testament meant, what their Torah meant. Torah was the, the law. Okay? We just talked about the laws of Moses. All that's Torah. Okay? Now the principle they had, which was a good one, said one Sopher can disagree with another Sopher, but a Sopher cannot disagree with the Torah. You with me? Say Sopher. Good. Sopher, so good. They were the scribes. And a scribe could disagree with a scribe, but a scribe could not disagree with the Bible. The Bible is the authority in Israel. You with me? Now, after the Sopharim wrote or started to record their stuff, okay, they were replaced by a group of teachers. By, the teachers are called Taner. Okay? That's the Hebrew word for teacher. And the Taner began to discuss what the Sopharim had written down, or at least verbally uh, handed down. And the Taner basically had another principle. One Taner can disagree with another Taner, but a Taner can, cannot disagree with a Sopher. When they got to that point, what have they done with the teaching of the Sopher? They made it equal to the Scripture. And that was the rub. At the time of Christ, the teaching of the Sopher was equal to the teaching of the Scripture. That's why all that Old Testament Sabbath stuff that we did in our last session had evolved. Okay? The Torah has one Old Testament commandment, the teaching of the Sopher had 1,500 Sabbath regulations. So the Taner said, well, we'll disagree with each other, but the Sopher are just as valuable as the Scripture. So now the teaching of the Word of God was equal to the teaching of the Sopher. Now, they had to justify that. So by the time of Jesus, the Jewish rabbis came up with a theory called the theory of the Mishnah. Mishnah means what? Second. Okay. And in order to justify this approach... This Mishnah, being equal to the Word of God, they said this, when Moses got the law at Mount Sinai, he actually was given two laws. Now that did not happen, but that's what they taught. Okay? He was given the written law, the 613 laws that we have in the books of Moses, but he was also given an oral law called the second law or the Mishnah. Now the great thing for us is, after the Taner were teaching, this group of the Gemara showed up, and the Gemara had this theory that the Mishnah needs to get written down when a heretical sect in Judaism appears, claiming that the Messiah had come. So in 90 A.D., at the end of the first century, while most of the New Testament was being recorded, the Mishnah was written down for us, so we can actually study Mishnah. You can Google Mishnah and study it. It's, it's a fascinating fascinating thing to study. And that's the first 25% or so of the Talmud. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see, after the Beatitudes, Jesus deals with the law. Okay? And he's going to use the phrase over and over again, you have heard it said. That's the oral tradition. You have heard it said by the Pharisees in the Mishnah, this is how you keep the law, but I say unto you, this is how you keep the law. So let's get there. Matthew chapter, lost my glasses, <laughs> Matthew chapter uh, 5, okay? He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything takes place. 
Now, just so you could see it, in the, in the old King James and in some of the older translations, it says, not one jot or tittle will pass away. I want you to see what the smallest letter or stroke of the law look like. Okay, the jot is that little apostrophe-looking thing. That's the Hebrew word for Elohim or God. And this is the jot, okay? It's very easy to misplace that guy. And then this is a Hebrew letter for R, and that's a Hebrew letter for D. And the difference between the R, which is a resh, and the D, which is a dalit, is a tittle. That's that little point on the D. So Jesus says, look, I love the law. I'm not coming to destroy the law. I'm not coming to abolish the law. I'm coming to fulfill it. We're going to talk about how that happens. You with me? Because he's always being accused of, oh boy, he violates the law, he violates the Sabbath, he violates blasphemy, we're going to kill him. So we get into the sermon, and Jesus unpacks for us his interpretation of the law. Verse 19, so anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so, which are the Pharisees, will be called least in the kingdom, but whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And there's our verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts of the law, that's the scribes, and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Now, cap number two, small letter A, let's talk about murder. <laughs> Jesus jumps right in. You have heard it said in the Mishnah by the Pharisees to an older generation, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. Now in the Mishnah, murder only happened when somebody died. You with me? That was the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. Outward obedience. As long as you didn't kill anybody, you hadn't committed murder. But I say unto you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment, and whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be sent to fiery hell. <laughs> Uh, how many people have I murdered this week? See? It's not about external obedience. It's about inward perfection. So then if you bring your gift to the altar there and remember that you, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your gift. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser while on the way to court. Or may he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the warden, and you'll be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Had enough of murder? Let's jump right into adultery. Matthew 5, 27. Again, you have heard it said, where? In the Mishnah by the Pharisees. Do not commit adultery. Now guess what their interpretation of adultery was when sexual intercourse happened. Okay? Well, Jesus gives us this awful verse. He says, but I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <laughs> I don't like this. See? When does adultery happen? It happens up here. Not when sexual intercourse happens. When I first went to seminary, one of my professors was a wise old man named Stanley Toussaint, and we had him for a course in the book of Matthew. We were getting into this passage, and he had just turned about 70 and we said, Dr. Toussaint, you know, I think I was 24 at the time. I said, you just turned 70. When does lust occur? Because that's the word. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. When does lust occur? He said, well, man, I'll tell you. Lust occurs when you take that long second look. You can't help but notice a woman if you're a guy. We're wired that way. You know, I, drive, I live near Lake Hollingsworth, and I drive around Lake Hollingsworth, and we have the co-eds who are cute, and sometimes 
scantily clad, and I can't help but go. But when I make the decision to look again and to undress her in my mind, that's adultery under Jesus' interpretation of the law. So the logical question then was, Dr. Toussaint, when will lust stop being a problem for us? He said, man, I'm 70. Hadn't quit yet. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown to hell. In other words, get rid of the source of your sin. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body go into hell. So now we've dealt with murder and we've dealt with adultery. Let's go to divorce. Now Matthew 19 is a, is a whole chapter on divorce, and so I'm going to deal with it more specifically when we get there. But in the quick overview, it was said by the Pharisees in the Mishnah. That's the fill-in-the-blank. Whoever divorces his wife, mu- wife must give her a legal document. Again, the Pharisees had a bunch of different ways to get a divorce. And all they had to do was walk in off the street, look at their wife and say, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee. And they could do it for any reason. If she burned the roast, I divorced thee. If she loses her physical appeal, I divorced thee. If she doesn't provide you with a male heir, I divorce thee. And that's why Matthew 19 is such a big deal in the scriptures. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't get off that easy. You have to give her a legal document. Verse 32, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We'll unpack that when we get to chapter 19 of Matthew. Let's go to oaths. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said, where? In the Mishnah, by the Pharisees, to an older generation, do not break an oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, do not take oaths at all, not by heaven, because it is the throne of God, not by earth, because it is his footstool, and not by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Again, the Pharisees were like children. Remember when you were a kid and you crossed your fingers? Will you do this errand for me? Yes, I will. But if you have your fingers crossed, what? You don't do it. That's what they did. They had this whole system of oaths. If you swear by Jerusalem, you have to not do it. If you swear by the temple, you don't have to do it. But if you swear by the gold on the temple, you've got to do it. It was ridiculous. Here's the key, verse 36. Again, the Pharisees said, if God's name is used, you have to keep your word, but only if God's name is used in the oath. Therefore, do not take an oath by your head, because you are not able to make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. More than this is from the evil one. Next, retaliation. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Again, this is actually a quote from Leviticus 24:19. It is the principle of lex talionis. And it, the principle is, the punishment should fit the crime. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had made it into a personal thing. It's not about the criminal justice system. It's about me getting even with you. Well, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, turn the left. Verse 40, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Again, in, in, in Israel, they were, they were occupied by Romans, and the Roman soldier could go to any occupied citizen and say, carry my pack for a mile. You had to do it. Jesus says, do it too. Give to the one who asks you and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. 
Now again, verse 43, let's talk about love. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now again, in your Bible, it says love your enemy is in italics. That means it's a quote from the Old Testament. Hate your enemy, guess where that's from? The Mishnah. That's not in the Old Testament. Okay? So they had twisted that. But I say to you, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven. Okay? Verse 45, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same. So again, verse 48, then be perfect as your Father in heaven is, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now he gets to giving. You know, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He's dealt with murder and divorce and adultery and... Let's get right to money. And in this section of the sermon, there's a phrase that com comes up over and over again, to be seen by people, literally to be seen by men. Be careful, chapter 6 and verse 1, not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Thus, whenever you do charitable giving, do not blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. The Pharisees would take all of their giving from their tithes and their offerings and they would take it in coins. And they would go to these large metal containers that were called trumpets and they would pour the coins in the trumpet. Sometimes preceded by da-da-da-da. Jesus says, you know, if you do that, you got your reward now. When you're giving, verse 3, when you do your giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your gift may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think it's a good idea to have envelopes for the offering. You know, if you've ever taken an offering in a, in a, in a, in a place where they don't have envelopes, it always cracks me up. The $1 bills are all crinkled and hidden underneath and the 20s are laid out there. Prayer. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray while standing in the synagogues and on street corners so that people can see them. Truly I say to you, they have their reward, but whenever you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's going to talk about prayer here. And he's going to give us what unfortunately is called the Lord's Prayer. Now the Lord's Prayer is not here. The Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17. But he's going to give us some principles for prayer. And you don't pray to show off. You don't pray to show what a great orator you are. But here's when you do pray, verse 7, do not babble repetitiously like the Gentiles because they think that by their many words they will be heard. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, don't pray, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And now Jesus gives us what is unfortunately called the Lord's Prayer, and in places where it is practiced, and I'm not sure Jesus ever meant for this prayer to be prayed out loud by a group, it's okay to do it. I don't think that was his intent. But the people that get up and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And if it's meaningless, you've lost the idea of the prayer. So when you pray, do this. Verse 9. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven. So you address God. Second, may your name be honored. So honor God. Third, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray about the kingdom. We're looking for Jesus to come back and establish his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Fourth, now, once you've gotten started, then pray about your daily needs. Today, give us today our daily bread, 
And forgive us, this is about forgiveness, number five, forgive us our debts as we ourselves have forgiven our debtors. I think it's mostly a financial term there. And then pray about the spiritual warfare, verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others' sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now Jesus goes to an area in which I am an expert, fasting. Fasting is fine, and I, I highly recommend fasting. But we're not forced to fast. We're not under the Old Testament law to fast. The, the Pharisees fasted two days a week, and when they did, apparently they looked terrible. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. When you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others when you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he gets back to money. You know, he doesn't, again, he doesn't mince words here. And the, there's a Hebrew idiom here called don't do this, but do that. Don't do this, but do that. Don't do this, but do that. And Jesus picks up on that. Don't accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, when I talk about giving, I, I like to use this. I've got a picture of a hearse that's pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. Anybody ever been to Graceland? And Elvis was a man who had it all, and he left it all behind. But you can invest and send your finances on ahead by investing in ministry opportunities. That's one of the reasons we give. We give as an act of worship to invest in the future. And it's a reflection of our heart. You know, if I'm giving, it shows that I'm trusting the Lord. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye then is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, darkness, I'm sorry, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money because they have opposite demands. And then he talks about worry. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have something to worry about? i got great news for you, even based upon this little passage. In life, there are two things to worry about, only two. Either you are well or you are sick. If you are well, you've got nothing to worry about. If you are sick, there are only two things to worry about. You're either going to get well or you're going to die. If you get well, there's nothing to worry about. But if you die, there are only two things to worry about. You can either go to heaven or you can go to hell. If you go to heaven, there's nothing to worry about. But if you go to hell, you'll be so busy shaking hands with your friends, you won't have anything to worry about. <laughs> I love this part of the sermon. Therefore, Jesus says, do not worry about your life. Verse 25. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, isn't there more to life than food and more to the body than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? 
Which of you by worrying can even add one hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothing? Think of the flowers of the field. They do not work or spin. I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to heat the oven, won't he clothe you even more, you people of little faith? So then, don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the unconverted pursue these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, above all, pursue his kingdom and righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. And then this is my life verse. So then, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Can I get an amen from the congregation? (laughs) Now, chapter 7, he talks about judging. And the word judging really is better translated condemning. Do not condemn so that you will not be condemned. For the standard, verse 2, you judge by will be... for the. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you use will be the measure you receive. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? Well, there is a beam in your own. You hypocrite, first remove the beam from your own eye, then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before pigs, otherwise they will trample them under their feet and turn and, and tear you to pieces. So Jesus is saying, hey, it's not wrong to judge, but make sure you're judging by the right standard. And make sure you know that by the standard you're judging, you're going to be held accountable for. See, God judges. And I can go to someone and say, look, God says this, here's the scripture, and I'm not here to condemn you, but the scripture is saying what you're doing is not right. But I need to be willing to understand that I'm being judged by the same standard. The Pharisees always condemned without obeying the same standard. More about prayer. You know, he talks about money twice. He talks about prayer twice. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open for you. Those words are in present continuous form. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Is there anyone among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, all, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then true righteousness. In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. You know, it's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's, in the Old Testament, it says, don't do to someone what you don't want done to you. So Jesus twists that just a little bit. And then after dealing with the Beatitudes and the law, Jesus is going to offer the kingdom. Here's the invitation. Okay? He's going to give four twos, two ways of access, two trees, two uh, foundations, and two builders. First of all, the ways of access, Matthew 7:13. Enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and, and the way is spacious that leads to destruction and there are many who enter in it. But the gate is narrow and the way is difficult that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now again, Jesus is saying, this is my approach to the Old Testament law. How righteous do you have to be under the Old Testament law? Perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What do the Pharisees say about getting into heaven? All you've got to do to get to heaven is be Jewish. In fact, the Talmud has a verse that says, Father Abraham sits at the gates of hell just in case some Jew accidentally gets sent there. 
So the, the, the Pharisees' gate is wide. Jesus says, no, my way is narrow. You've got to make a decision, people. And then he says, verse uh, 5, there are two trees. Watch out for false prophets, those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorns or figs from thistles, are they? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, who's the good tree? Jesus. Who's the bad tree? The Pharisees. What is Jesus' fruit? Love, forgiveness, heaven. What are the Pharisees producing in their life? They're furious. They've got anger. They've got rage. They're trying to kill Jesus at this very time. So pick the one that has the best fruit. In the end, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then we have the two professions. Two professions, the true profession and the counterfeit profession. Not profession, your job, but what you profess from your mouth. So then you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many powerful deeds? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Oh, if you're a Pharisee, you're really not happy right now because your whole life is about keeping the law and he's saying you're a lawbreaker. You can claim to know Jesus, but if in their case they haven't backed it up with their fruit and their lives, they're in big trouble. And then his final invitation, the two builders. Everyone who hears these words of mine as opposed to the words of the Mishnah, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, but it did not collapse because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does do not and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, What's the sand? The sand is the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. See? And the rain fell and the flood came and the winds beat against that house and it collapsed and it was utterly destroyed. And that's exactly what happened to the Pharisees in 70 A.D. Because their foundation was not the rock. Their foundation was this Mishnah and they were utterly destroyed and taken out of the land for 1,900 years. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings. Go back to one last thing. Not one jot or tittle will pass from the law. Because the law demands how perfect you need to be. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The law is not given to get anybody to heaven. Even if you kept all 613 laws outwardly and inwardly, you still wouldn't be promised heaven. All you would be for, forgiven of is, is your sin and you wouldn't have to go to hell. Okay. Why Jesus comes is to fulfill the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. What does the law demand? The law demands that we die. The wages of sin is death. When you break the law, you deserve to die. And here's my favorite verse in the New Testament. If you haven't memorized this one, it's a good one. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If this is me, Ed Diaz, and this black pen is my sinfulness, 
this is all the evil that I've done. If you started writing with this Sharpie, you would run out of ink before you realize all that I've done because I can't keep the law outwardly or inwardly. And then here's Jesus. And Jesus has all this other stuff that is perfect. Jesus has never broken the law. Okay? When you come to faith in Jesus, this happens. It's the most wonderful thing. It's called the doctrine of double imputation. I call it the big switch. I go to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I'm going to give you my sinfulness. And at that same time, Jesus says, I've died on the cross and I'm going to give you my perfection. So now when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. Where's my sin? Over here with Jesus. What does he see? He sees Jesus is perfect and he's in me. And that's why Jesus says, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I can't be perfect, but Jesus is perfect. And he's willing, the message of the gospel is he's willing to give you his perfection when you come to faith in him. Isn't that great? And then it's a matter of him in me, living his life in me. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, that he kept the law perfectly outwardly and inwardly. We can't do that, but we have a Savior who did it in our place. And I pray you'd help us to get our arms around the doctrine of the big switch, that in Christ we are forgiven, that in Christ he has taken our sin so that we might come before you and have access to your heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.